0: I'm Candy McNeil, a psychotherapist in Guelph, Ontario, and this is my radio show, Open Minds. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. This show is dedicated to reducing the stigma around mental illness. Often, people with mental illnesses get lumped all together and judged as a group, rather than being seen as the individuals they are. And sometimes we focus way more on their weaknesses and impairments rather than on their strengths and their gifts. On this show, I'm going to bring you stories from professionals and from people who experience mental illness that I really think will open your mind around what it's actually like to have a brain that works differently. One thing I've learned from my 15 years in the field is that contrary to what you might hear in the media or from misinformed individuals, mental illness is not a sign of weakness or laziness. It doesn't make someone dangerous or stupid. It's not a moral failing or a stain on one's character. And most importantly, it is not a choice or something someone can just, quote, get over. I have met some of the most hardworking, strong, smart, sensitive, and likable people in my office or in the hospital. People I'd enjoy having as a family member, a friend, or a partner. But often these people feel judged in a very negative way. They feel less than or not good enough because of their mental illness and they're very afraid that friends, partners, coworkers, roommates, and family members will think less of them too. And try as they might, they can't always recover. In fact, sometimes they don't fully want to because some part of the illness makes them feel good. I know that part is confusing for people who don't have a mental illness. You might ask, if it's really an illness, why wouldn't you want to get over it? I think it can be like smoking or drinking too much. On one hand, you know it's bad for you, but it's also calming, and so one part of you wants to quit while another part of you wants to continue. The ambivalence about quitting can actually be part of the disease. I think that in the same way we don't judge someone who gets leukemia or MS, we also needn't judge someone who gets bipolar or an eating disorder or any other mental illness. If we can be compassionate to people who have an illness in their blood or their liver, then surely we can show understanding to people who have an illness in their brains. Similarly, in the same way that we understand that chemo doesn't always get rid of cancer, we must be able to also understand that treatment isn't always successful for mental illnesses either. And just like the way that no one is racing to start chemotherapy with all of its nasty side effects, many people feel reluctant to start therapy that might make them feel worse before they feel better. Mental illnesses are complex and not fully understood even by doctors and researchers. Our best guess, and honestly, right now that's all it is, our best guess is that mental illnesses are the result of a very complex combination of genetic, biochemical, environmental, and interpersonal factors. The same can be said of some kinds of cancers, and when it comes to those, we would never dream of telling someone, or ourselves if we're the sufferer, to just get over it, or snap out of it, or get better by themselves. If someone is struggling with cancer, we'd encourage that person to see an oncologist and to take powerful drugs like chemotherapy if it might help, and to take time off work or school to let themselves heal. But when it's depression or an anxiety disorder or some other mental illness, some people think they should be able to get better on their own without professional help or medication, and that they should be able to do this on top of work and school and relationships. I wonder why we can't live in a culture where it's just as okay to talk to a therapist as it is to go see a dentist. Why do we feel shame about one and not about the other? Well, the point of this show is to explore those very issues. Some people do struggle with a mental illness, but you might be surprised to learn that many also thrive and succeed. As you listen to my interviews with experts in the field and with people who have mental illnesses or their family members, you'll hear firsthand that mental illnesses don't just hold people back. They sometimes give unexpected gifts and help individuals develop greater compassion, creativity, tolerance, and drive. Whatever your current beliefs are about mental illness, your own or those in the people around you, I hope you'll listen with an open mind. So this is Candy McNeil, and I am interviewing Allie Henderson, who is program manager here at Sheena's Place. Thank you so much for being willing to uh, talk with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Hmm. So Sheena's Place, tell us a little bit about the uh, history and what you do here.
1: Sure. Sheena's Place opened up in 1996. We are an old historic house in the annex in Toronto. Uh, So we've been here since the 90s. It was named after Sheena Carpenter, who passed away from anorexia. Her family and friends created Sheena's Place because they saw a gap in the healthcare system. So what we do now, offering hope and support to people living with and affected by eating disorders, didn't exist in the 90s. So in her passing and in her memory, Sheena's Place came to be Um, I'm the program manager here, so I oversee all the programs that we run in addition to coming up with new programs and running two groups myself.
0: And so what kind of groups and and what kinds of programs do you offer here and how does somebody access those if they'd like to?
1: Sure. So we offer groups uh, free of charge. There's no waiting list. Once you make the phone call to Sheena's Place, you're guaranteed to be in a group within 72 hours. We offer support groups, skilled-based groups, expressive arts groups, and body image groups. That's how we sort of separate our categories. Um, I'm running a support group and skilled-based group. We have facilitators of um, a varied background, professional background, many social workers. Um, And so once people come in, they have an information interview We get to know them, what their needs are, and how best we can suit our programming to them. And then we suggest different groups that they may be interested in.
0: What an amazing resource, especially with the short waiting list, because that's one of the problems for sure in Ontario, and I think probably across Canada, is how long people sometimes have to wait. Um, And one of the reasons that's so discouraging is because sometimes it takes a long time for people to get up the courage First, to admit that they have a problem, let alone to um, be willing to accept treatment for it. So that's a really fabulous um, resource that you guys have. Do people come here while they're on waiting lists for more intensive treatment? Do they come here instead? Do they come here after?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. Um, We see lots and lots of people that have been on waiting lists. Um, Right now, I mean, depending on what hospital you're trying to get into, you can be waiting a year and a half. And we know for people who are extremely sick, not everyone has a year and a half to go. So I find that Sheena's Place is the beginning, the middle, and end of treatment. We're there in the beginning when you want to make that first contact and say, you know, I really need some support with this. We're there if hospital treatment maybe doesn't work out for you, maybe you relapse, Sheena's Place is still there. We're there at the end of treatment when you graduate and then when you're feeling well. Um, So I think it's really interesting that we come into people's lives at so many different stages of their illness.
0: What a great continuum of care you offer, right? And supporting people all the way through, which is amazing. Um, Have you seen the same thing that sometimes people are hesitant to come in for treatment? And if so, what do you think some of the barriers are that maybe hold people back from coming in?
1: Most definitely. There is a lot of stigma. There's a lot of shame that goes along with having an eating disorder. Many people don't want others to know. They don't want their family to know, their work to know. They want to make sure that they can still continue on in life. But they realize that they are falling short on relationships or things aren't going so well at work. So people do come for support. But we have to keep in mind we're seeing people at different stages. Not everyone necessarily wants to get better, but they do need skills to cope on a daily basis. So we are there not to tell people what to do or how to get better, but to meet them where they're at and give them the support that's going to help them.
0: Allie, could you speak more about that piece around how not everybody wants to get better? Because I think that that's part of what's confusing to people who don't understand about eating disorders. If they compare it to a cancer, even though, of course, you're not eager to go in for chemotherapy, generally speaking, if your doctor recommends it, you don't fight it and you start that right away. And as you're saying, not everybody is eager or willing to go for treatment around their eating disorder. What do you make of that? How do you understand that and the difference between that and say someone going for chemo?
1: Sure. Um, From a professional sort of point of view, it's so difficult and frustrating because we want to help everybody, but we need to realize what is at the root of eating disorders. When you have cancer, that's not in your control. You go for chemotherapy. We know that eating disorders, the Um, Feeling of needing control really fuels your eating disorder. So at the end of the day, if that is the only thing you're controlling in your life and that is the only thing that is giving you satisfaction, then maybe you don't want to lose that. And saying that you want to get rid of your eating disorder is saying, I'm giving up control. So I think it's finding that fine balance of working with clients, patients, of where they're at to get them to a place where they find control in a well way. But not everybody gets there, nor do they want to get there.
0: And I think that inadvertently contributes to one of the stigmas, you know, that idea that if it was really an illness, you would want to get rid of it. But you explained so well how giving it up actually um, may mean losing something, may mean losing something that feels very vital.
1: Most definitely. And a lot of the time it feels good. It's comfort for people with eating disorders. So as much as people in the community who are well don't understand that, if you really go to where they're at in their life, that is now a bit of a security blanket and not everybody wants to let that go.
0: At Sheena's Place, do you offer any kind of support or education for family or friends who would like to understand better? Because I think for some people hearing what you have to say would be like, oh, I never thought of it that way.
1: Most definitely. And if we want to look at the bigger picture of what wellness is, you have to include family and friends. It's not something you can just do on your own, even though many people think in the beginning they probably can. We have a family, friends, and partner support group. It is extremely popular. We have a huge turnout every week. And it's interesting to see the shared experience between these families and loved members. They think they're alone in it, but then they hear from everyone else and they realize they're not. So I think there's There's a lot of power in support groups and a lot of comfort, so we use that as psychoeducation in addition to a big hug at the end of the day. Um, We're doing a new family-based treatment group that's beginning in the spring, has never run here before, and that's sort of helping, preparing parents who are getting ready for their adolescent maybe to be in FBT is what it would be shortened for um, in the hospital system. So I think we're trying to see where the gaps are to make sure we're looking at the big picture to support families and loved ones
0: we can talk about the shame and stigma that exists for the person who's struggling. But as you mentioned that, I think sometimes there's also shame or stigma for the family members and especially for parents, right? I hear a lot from moms, like, is it somehow my fault? What did I do? Families worrying about that, partners or friends. Um, do you have that experience here? And, and if so, what kinds of um, shame or guilt do you hear family members and partners talking about?
1: We hear a lot of shame. I would say that's one extremely common theme that we hear within that support group. People are wondering, you know, Do we talk about food the right way at home? Did I talk about dieting too much? Did I pressure my child to do too many athletic activities? And that just continues to um, give them rapid thoughts they can't get rid of and how to help their child or their loved one. Um, So what we want to do is give the education and awareness, and we need to get away from parent-blaming or partner-blaming. Because at the end of the day, parents aren't the sole root of why somebody has an eating disorder and they just need to hear that from professionals and they need to hear other reasons why eating disorders happen so that they don't just sit with all that guilt and shame at the end of the day
0: one of the things that I have seen in doing family therapy is how helpful it is to parents to hear that there are multiple, um, contributing factors, right? That it may be partly some family dynamics it may be also partly genetics or other biochemical things. It may be partly environmental things and the culture that we live in, right? But that there are all of these factors that go into it. And I agree with you that sometimes just hearing that from a professional seems to take a huge weight off of their shoulders in terms of not beating themselves up so much, and then starting to think maybe they could be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, which is fabulous. Um, You mentioned um, family-based therapy, and there are a number of treatment modalities that are available, none which seem to be a a perfect cure for 100% of people. um, But I wonder if there are stigmas around treatment um, that you would like to maybe correct or um, challenge. You know, if you've heard people talk about why they don't even want to apply to a hospital program or what their fears are about what will happen with an admission.
1: I think a lot of parents, sort of back to the question before, are worried about that parent blaming piece. So family-based treatment therapy, it's the adolescent who's sick with their parents, and you go through that therapeutic process every step of the way together instead of sort of isolating the adolescent, isolating parents. There's controversies because they would say that treats adolescents 12 years of age and older the best with the highest success rate. Of course, nothing is ever a guarantee. Um, But for example, if you look at the hospital for sick children right now and their admissions, they're getting people admitted at six years of age. So then what happens for those kids and those families because they're saying FBT isn't the best treatment model for that age group. So I think when they're, and you hear those gaps, you get worried and parents get worried thinking, now what? I have a six-year-old who's anorexic. What do we give them and what how do we treat them? So I think different professionals have different ways of viewing it. When you have young children, parents need to be involved in having control to refeed their child. But what the actual therapy is going to look like after they're refed, I think, can be different in lots of different hospitals, private therapy, support groups, whatever it may be.
0: I think some listeners will be shocked to hear you say that children as young as six years old are being admitted to hospital for an eating disorder. And I think if ever there was a, like, I can't think of any better argument for how it's not someone's fault. Like a six-year-old doesn't go, hmm, I think I'll start struggling with bulimia and really, like, uh, pull my whole family down into sick kids for, you know, three months of treatment, right? Like it just doesn't work like that. And I'm not sure why we see it so clearly with a six year old or a nine year old. But by the time someone is 16 or 19 or 26, we think they should be able to do it differently. It does seem like there's some kind of marker that says at a certain point, like, can't you get over it? Can't you just knock it off? Have you heard that kind of stuff?
1: I've heard it a lot, and I think that goes a lot with the misconceptions and the myths of eating disorders. You know, it's sort of a Caucasian, teenager, female illness. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it affects everybody across any socioeconomic background, any age, any gender. So... You know, it's it's hard to have those conversations, but we need to have them because that's not the reality at the end of the day. And We think we have to look at our dialogue a lot more too. So thinking about children who are six years old going to treatment for an eating disorder, I was speaking with a school teacher the other day, and they were saying how in their grade one class, so you're just out of kindergarten, and in grade one, they're saying you're fat to the other kids. So Where do we learn those words and why would we ever say that to another human being at that age? So I think we need to look a lot into society, conversations, adults, how are we speaking and what are we teaching children? Because if it's happening at that age, it's going to get younger and younger.
0: Absolutely. Um, What are some of the other myths and misconceptions that you think are out there about eating disorders generally that you would like to set straight?
1: I would like to set straight that it affects men. I think that's a big piece. People do not realize that. This is the first time ever this winter that Sheena's Place has offered a men's support group. It's never happened in the past. It's been very popular. And we did a focus group before running this group to learn from the men firsthand their experiences. What do you encounter? How do you feel about your body? And many of them say they haven't had any help because they can't go to their doctors. Their doctors don't understand. One client mentioned um, talking to their physician about not feeling well about their body image and realizing their eating is getting out of control. And basically, the doctor was just saying, you know, get over it and hit the gym. Mm -hmm. So that's the message at the end of the day. Bulk up, be a man, get over it. And I think what what are we doing to help these people? So now we're having a men's support group. We're hearing the stories. We're getting people together. We're having them speak out. Don't feel so ashamed and alone. But I think it takes education for physicians and everyone else out in the community, but people do not realize that it's such a big prevalence for men.
0: I would agree with that. And the numbers say that for sure, more women than men struggle. And I have wondered if maybe that's just because men don't feel comfortable coming forward with it. And you know, thinking I can't possibly have an eating disorder because I'm a guy. And so that there must be something else wrong with me, Um, which I think could then double the shame when you find out actually, no, it is an eating disorder, right? It's an eating disorder and that's bad enough. But on top of it, I'm a guy and I shouldn't have this.
1: Exactly. It's not manly. Right? To think that you're worried about your weight, that you're over-exercising, you're taking different drugs to alter what your muscles may look like. And so just as you said, it's more prevalent for women, but we're not necessarily sending a survey out every day to every man on the street to circle yes or no if you have an eating disorder or if you have issues with body image. Right? So we don't have a fair assessment of the numbers out there.
0: You make a really good point, too, that I think um, I think one of the misconceptions that exists is that you can tell by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder. And in fact, that body image component is a really big part of it. And that can happen in someone no matter what their body size or shape. Would you agree?
1: Most definitely. I had a father call in the other day and he was saying, you know, I'm really worried about my daughter. Her eating habits are getting out of control. And he said, you know, people around us don't recognize it because she's not super skinny. So if you're not super skinny, then you don't have an eating disorder. And I think that's a big marker for people is if you're very, very thin, you're anorexic. That's what an eating disorder is.
0: So uh, now there's a support group for men. Mm-hmm. You have a support group for family members and friends. So, um, trying to offer treatment to people through the entire um, journey of mm-hmm. their eating disorder, from first starting mm-hmm. to identify a problem, right through whatever treatments and, and into wellness. You said before, you know about the the idea of what wellness is. Mm-hmm. How would you
1: define that? I think that is such a difficult question. I think it's different for everybody out there. At the end of the day, I would love to think that wellness is a state of mind as well as your physical being. Physical being in the sense that you feel strong, you feel nourished, and you feel healthy. It's not what number shows when you're on the scale or what pair of pants you're putting on. But if you're a strong, nourished human being, I think that's wellness. Once your body is nourished and you're feeling strong, your mind is nourished. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where our self of being and our self-esteem comes along. But that, of course, can be affected by those around us. But having the education and the awareness of how we should feel about ourselves is going to be a big key to what that wellness Mm -hmm. is going to look like in the future. Excellent. Um, is there anything else that you feel like you know Sheena's place
0: tries to um, convey mm-hmm. into the community at large mm-hmm. to
1: people who come in for treatment? But I would love to just break down the shame and guilt of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. It is happening everywhere people are having issues with their body, whether or not you go and you have a diagnosis of an eating disorder, everyone has some type of body image dissatisfaction. And at the end of the day, I don't want it to be something that we're shameful of, but something that we talk about. I would love to challenge the media, but I know that's a pretty big uh, target to take on. But um, start having conversations, start thinking about language. How do we view things? How do we discuss things? And to support one another. I'm not into this competitive culture where we're trying to beat everybody down. We're Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, one up the next person. We're trying to be the best at everything. But why we just can't support one another, be there for each other, and sort of break down those barriers oh, I feel like you're singing to the choir. right right
0: on. Like, how do I get your voice out there? Because really that's it, right? Mm -hmm. It is partly that competitive nature that makes us feel not good enough, right? And is she thinner than me? Is she funnier than me? Mm -hmm. Is she smarter than me? And does that mean I'm less somehow? Exactly. Um, As opposed to, you know, we're all good enough. We're all good enough and have different strengths and different weaknesses. So I love that that idea gets promoted here. For um, those of you who are listening, who have never been to Sheena's Place. As Ali mentioned, it is um, a really lovely old home in Toronto. But when you look around, there's this really inspiring artwork
1: all through the place. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about some of the Mm -hmm. art that you have
0: here, where it comes
1: from? We have a few expressive arts groups, and those are really in place for people who are not ready to verbally discuss what they're going through. So they express themselves in different art mediums. We are here for our clients at the end of the day. This house is still here because of them. So we love for them to feel ownership of this old historic home. So when they make beautiful art pieces, whether it's together as a community art project or it's individually, we want them to feel proud of their work and to see the accomplishment in what they created. So we love to have everything up and around the house. We have an art show every June where we love to promote our clients' work Um, and, and any way that we can celebrate their gifts of creativity. We, we do that.
0: What I love about it. Um, and it was in the washroom of all places, Mm -hmm. you know, was a piece that was just so inspiring and it had these really, um, thoughtful, um, just little quotes, Mm -hmm. right. That uh, part of, I think, starting to overcome an eating disorder is, as you said, challenging the culture, challenging the media, but also like challenging that environment in Mm -hmm. your own head and having, positive thoughts to Mm -hmm. replace the negative ones and I love like just as soon as you walk in here you think like what an atmosphere of acceptance Mm -hmm. and what if we could walk around in this bubble like all the time right when I leave here that bubble of you're good enough and Mm -hmm. acceptance and Mm -hmm. compassion just went with us wherever
1: Mm -hmm. we went. I wish that as well Mm -hmm. I think you know with with the bathroom project it's a very triggering place for our clients so how can we reframe that? How can we show that a bathroom can be a a, a happy well place so whether it's interactive art projects it's inspirational quotes it's you know re- changing how a scale looks to the common eye we want to do that we don't want people to come here and feel triggered but showing them how we can reframe that environment so there's
0: your tip for the day. If you are somebody who is struggling with an eating disorder or you live in the same mm-hmm. home with someone who maybe struggles and you want to do something supportive, instead of the bathroom being associated with the place where the scale is mm-hmm. or the place where the, the toilet is for purging mm-hmm. or the place where the mirror is to look at yourself and criticize, what if instead you transformed that room into a room of affirmation mm-hmm. and acceptance, right? With some really positive statements on the mirror or on the yes, wall. Yes, Definitely. Yeah, that's your project for today, yes. if you're listening. And yes, you're, and, and I would thinking. say for
1: everyone to throw those scales out. Yeah. That's what I would say.
0: I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I I don't keep a blood pressure cuff in the bathroom. Nope. Why am I keeping a scale in the exactly. bathroom? Exactly. Right? Exactly. Those numbers that show
1: up don't define who we are. Mm-hmm. Allie, you speak so well about this. Can I just ask, what mm-hmm. brought you into this field? Um, Growing up, I was a camp counselor. Mm-hmm. I loved summer camp. I always counseled the older girl cabins and what I realized at a young age was how many different body image issues were happening and hearing how girls spoke to one another and I just thought, what, what is wrong with our culture? I absolutely hated the idea that someone would look in the mirror and hate what they saw. I would say I was very lucky growing up with my girlfriends, and I didn't realize some of those issues until I was with some vulnerable youth, and I thought this has to change. What can I do to help change this? I don't like being in a place where we're always reactive to health issues, whatever that may be, especially in mental health. I would like to be proactive, and I would love to work with young girls to help them before they're here with a diagnosed eating disorder. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, congratulations Thank on you. taking something um, like that and, and turning it into um, a place like this that is really just so encouraging and so safe mm-hmm. and, um, and really a, a place where people can start to explore what it means to struggle with an eating disorder, but maybe also to start to explore what life would be like without an exactly. eating disorder exactly. um, and how they might uh, feel at peace with themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Any last words? Well, I would just like to say thank you for sharing this. I would love for people to come and check Sheena's place out, give us a phone call, learn more about the house, learn more about resources in the community, and for everybody to be a bit kinder to themselves and not to be so harsh with one another or with yourself and just to have some self-compassion.
0: Excellent words of wisdom. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a link to Sheena's Place on my website, um, which will uh, have a podcast of this show if you want to
1: hear. But um, give people the number and the address just in case they want to pop by or they want to give a call. Sure. So it's 416-927-8900 and we're at 87 Spadina Road in Toronto. Terrific.
0: Really, uh, you should take her up on that. If you're someone who is uh, struggling at all or um, you know someone who's struggling and you'd like some support yourself, uh, I think you'd really love it it here. So uh, do you take some time to support Sheena's and if you're not able to do it that way um, I will just put in a little plug that says I know you all do fundraisers and things we like do. that um, and so if this is a uh, cause that is near and dear to your heart like it is to mine um, please go online and support them that way. Thank as well. you very you can, much. Yeah. Thank you
1: very much. Sure.
0: So that's my show for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Open Minds. I'd like to thank my editor Craig, without whom these shows wouldn't be possible. If you've missed any part of this, or if you want to listen again or share with someone else, please visit my website at whatseatingyou.com. That's all one word, whatseatingyou.com, and click on the podcast link where you can find this and all previous shows. You can also find the show on the archives page at cfru.ca or you can subscribe to Open Minds on iTunes and be notified whenever a new show is available. I would really love to hear what you liked or didn't like about today's show and welcome suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover in the future. Please send those to my email, which is openminds at cfru.ca. That's openminds with an S at cfru.ca. Please know, though, that I may not be able to respond to all emails personally and that I definitely cannot respond to those asking for help or advice with a specific mental health problem. For those, I strongly encourage you to put aside your fear of stigma and see your doctor, try a therapist, visit the local emergency room, or call your nearest crisis hotline. And if you're concerned for someone around you, please try not to judge and instead encourage them to seek out the treatment they deserve. Remember, if you wouldn't hesitate to visit the dentist when your teeth are causing you pain, then you needn't hesitate to seek treatment when it's your brain that's causing you pain. I'm Candy McNeil. Please join me again next week here on Open Minds.